So just at the end of last month, end of April, um, in America, the, the Barnar Group, who are a research organization, conducted a study. They're a, a Christian group. Their vision is to provide people with credible knowledge and clear thinking, enabling them to navigate a complex and changing culture. So they help churches, they help organizations, they also help secular companies too, um, try and understand a changing world, the world that we live in. They're a research agency. The study last month, anyway, um, was relevant to us in our series because they were seeking to see whether Christians thought they were more like the Pharisees or more like Jesus. If you're here as a guest or a visitor, you've joined us near the end of a series now called Pharisees Anonymous. We've been looking at different passages and thinking about different aspects of Phariseeism and how they apply to us. And then thinking about the gospel and how that liberates and changes us. So this was the study from the Barnard Group. This was the question. Are Christians more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees? I have to say, as somebody who used to work in market research, it was a fairly crude study. What they did was they asked a total of 20 agree or disagree statements that sought to analyse whether you were more like the Pharisees or more like Jesus. And those questions were about your actions, what you did, how you lived, and your attitudes, what you thought about how you feel. So, for example, actions like Jesus. Could we tick this box? I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. Or... I regularly choose to have meals with people with very different faith or morals from me. There's some actions like Jesus, apparently. Some attitudes like Jesus. I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. Or the flip side then, self-righteous actions. These are good. I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins or struggles. They're between me and God. Or thirdly, I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. And then some self-righteous attitudes. These made me chuckle even more. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong thing. It's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. As I said, it's fairly crude, fairly simplistic. And then what you're able to do is classify where you fit on this grid. Attitudes, more like Jesus or the Pharisees. Actions, more like Jesus or the Pharisees. And of course, the findings show that over half the people they spoke to end up in the Pharisaical actions and attitudes quadrant. And so we Pharisaically look down at all the Pharisees in America. It's simplistic, but I think it sort of backs up our findings in this series. We've acknowledged something of that tendency in each of us, in our own hearts. People like us who, who, if we're honest, love to look down on others, who find security and value in what we do, who are miffed when they were asked to serve, but we weren't, or they were thanked and they were praised, and we weren't. People who are proud... People who have pharisaical hearts. Now, just to say, next week we're going to nuance our language slightly. We've given 
a fairly blanket definition of Pharisees so far. The evidence is from Jesus as he encounters this zealous religious group that often it was a very negative encounter. Much of the time he was angry, but not all of the time. So we will think about that next week. There was evidence of some who who did listen and who did follow him. And so it's wrong for us to paint them all with that brush. More of that next week. But for now, come with me to a dinner party. And see with me firstly that Pharisees clearly see the sin in others. Verse 37. It's page 1036 if you've lost it. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would not know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is. She is a sinner. So our setting for this morning is a dinner party. It's on the way past. It's really interesting. As you read through Luke, you see dinner parties coming up again and again. I think probably 16 different parties that Jesus either attended or, or taught about. Just a couple of verses beforehand, you see the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus got himself invited to dinner parties a lot. And if he wasn't invited, he, it seems, invited himself. <laughs> he didn't have a home to go to, a place to lay his head. But notice this, as we talk about dinner parties, this is not Jesus, the missionary, evangelist, gospel preacher, having a bit of time to unwind. Hard day out preaching, you go back to someone's house for a bite to eat, some quiet time. No, no, it seems to me this was a large extent, was it? This was his strategy for reaching people. This was planned. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and so as he did that, there was food in front of him, and he he loved and he taught and he challenged and he shared life and he, he modeled and enacted grace and he asked questions. So if you're a Christian who would like to be reaching people, who would like to be sharing your faith with others, then... Let's party. Missionary hospitality. Let's be proactively grabbing the neighbours for a barbecue this bank holiday weekend. Have the colleagues over from work. Have the people in your sports teams or, or whatever it is you fill your week with. Mix up your friends. Mix up your worlds. Show them grace. Speak to them of grace. As we see in Luke 7. Now, it was the custom in these larger houses that these dinner parties were, were essentially semi-public. There would be a huge courtyard. And even at a private function, there would be a way that people could get in and see and watch and kind of partake from a distance. Other people could be there. Other people like this woman. And of course, our Pharisee, Simon, who no doubt has everyone clocked and everyone judged and everyone tabled, knows exactly who she is. She's notorious. Luke describes in verse 37, she's lived a sinful life. Verse 39, she's a sinner. Almost certainly she was a prostitute. And so Simon judges her, and he judges Jesus. And she doesn't speak a word 
but her actions show us what's going on. They speak loudly to him. It's very moving. She she pours expensive perfume. She washes his feet with tears and wipes them with hair. And Jesus lets her do this? Does he not know who she is? Simon says, I've got you pigeonholed, Jesus. I know you're not a prophet, because if you were, you would know who's touching you. He judges her, and then Jesus. Now, you're a guest at a dinner party. There's candles. It's posh. You hear a knock at the door. Think nothing of it. It must be a guest who was delayed, or somebody collecting for charity, or whatever. There's a commotion, and it's... It's awkward because this woman pushes her way into the dining room in front of everyone and she really shouldn't be there and she's wearing a tight-fitting top with low cleavage. She's wearing a skirt that looks more like a pair of shorts. She's got coloured tights on. She's wearing high heels. She's got too much makeup. She's slightly tipsy and so she's a little bit loud. Looks like the kind of person you might have driven down passed on the Cowley Road, looking for custom. And like a missile, she homes in on the guest of honour. The person that you've come to listen to and learn from, to spend time with. And before you know it, her arms are thrown around him. And no one knows where to look. It's awkward. You could hear a pin drop except for the silence being broken by her mumbling to him, I'm yours, I'll always be yours. And she began to to massage his shoulders. Can we call the police? Shouldn't someone stop her? Can, Can we get rid of this woman? Can someone do something, please? And then you notice she's crying. And her mascara is streaking down her cheeks, her eyes are overflowing. And instead of pushing her away, he turns around and he puts his arms around her. And he reaches up to her. And he says something which at least sounds like, and you're mine. Can't be right. It's obvious what she's about, isn't it? It's obvious what kind of a person she is. What's what's he doing? Is he blind? Does he know her? How, How does he know her? Simon is typical, and so are we. No doubt you you felt something of the awkwardness in that encounter. Imagine it was your home with your friends and your guests, and you are the host of this dinner party, and somebody uninvited turns up. The ability we have with our pharisaical hearts to see the sin in other people is massive. And we hunt it out and we condemn it in others. That, that driver who cut me up on the ring road yesterday and we mither about it all day. And them and what they do and how they treated us and we, we chew over the conversations again and again and again what we ought to have said and how it ought to have gone and how could they even do that or say that to us? I would never do something like that. How could they treat us like that? And the sin of others offends us. 
And well, it might. God's a God of justice. There are rights and wrongs. We need to be clear of that. But how often do we just point the finger at them and their sin, but not at us? Do you remember when we launched the series, Woody was teaching the kids, and we thought about that age-old story that Jesus tells at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you build your house on sand or do you build your house on rock? And we said, what does it mean in the context of the Sermon on on the Mount to build on sand? As you read Matthew 5 to 7, what are the two options that keep coming up? And we said that building on sand is not not the irreligious. No, no, it's actually those who, who look great, who are impressive in the eyes of others. But when push comes to shove, it's just an act. They don't know God. Those who pray on street corners so everyone can see them and everyone can hear them. Those who give money but make a big song and a dance about it. Those who fast and announce it to everyone they meet and they put it on Twitter and their Facebook status. Now Jesus says building on the rock is building on his teaching. It means being poor in spirit. It means that we're meek and we mourn over sin. It means that we pray things like, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. But Jesus also says, why do you look at that speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Why do we do that? Why do other people's sins offend us more than our own sin? Why is it that we're even sat here thinking, I'm so glad that person is in the room here, because they need to hear this. And then we close our ears and ignore it for what it means for us. Don't you do that? Is it just me? And Simon was sat there looking at this woman who's come in, and all he could see was her sin. And he had missed his own plank. It's as if we look at everybody through a set of binoculars. And I look at you and I see your sin and it's magnified and it's horrible and it's ugly. I look at myself, I turn the binoculars around and it's tiny, insignificant, minuscule, forgettable. So second point, Pharisees do not see the sin in themselves. Three times in this passage we are told this is Simon the Pharisee's house. He lives here, verse 36. He went to the Pharisee's house, verse 37. She learned he was eating at the Pharisee's house. Verse 44, I came into your house, Simon. It's, it's Simon's house, it's Simon's dinner party. Simon was the host. Or, or was he? Because he didn't act as a host. The culture that this story happened in would have been what we call a shame culture. There are still cultures today around the world, particularly Middle Eastern or Oriental cultures, where matters of position and shame are hugely important as to how you live. For someone to bring shame on the family is almost worse than, worse than dying. It's often why we see in our country these, these battles going on when, 
and particularly second and third generations, adopt the principles and worldview of the country they're living in. They perhaps live with a Western mindset. They become a Christian. They're at odds with their culture, and so they bring shame on their family. And something like this was going on in the account here. Proper, generous hospitality matters. It's not just showing good manners. It's not just using a napkin. It's the whole social fabric being woven and built around carefully laid down conventions, expectations. And so we gasp at the start of the account if we get it because all the normal rituals aren't there. The courtesies have gone. Usually when an invited guest arrived, he would be kissed on the face as a greeting. He would be shown a seat, a a place of honour, if he was a rabbi, somebody important. They would sit in in a U-shaped dining couch. They would use oil and water to to wash their feet. And only when this has all taken place do they offer thanks to God. And then they sit down at the couches. And the food comes. And it's Simon's house, and it's his dinner party, but he's not a host. Because none of that happens. It's shameful. He doesn't act as a host. So she does. She approaches Jesus and she washes him. And Simon thinks Jesus is not a prophet because he doesn't know what she's like. But he is and he does. He's more than a prophet. He knows what she's like and he knows what Simon's like. And so he tells him a story. He doesn't defend her actions, he explains her actions. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Question for you. How many people owed money? Not rhetorical. How many people owed money? Two. In Simon's framework, it was one person who owed money. Two people owed money. One owed lots of money, a big debt. The other owed a bit. Neither of them could pay it back. But both had their debts cancelled. Which one was more thankful for forgiveness? Well, we see the one who was forgiven lots, the bigger debt. But I take it in Simon's mind by his attitude towards her and his arrogant, shameful treatment of the guests. He doesn't think he's in debt at all. Or if he did, it wasn't much. And so his grasp is minimal of forgiveness. Pharisees do not see the sin in themselves. Our sin is minimized. We look at the binoculars at ourselves the wrong way around. Our sin is tiny, theirs is big. So let me encourage you, if I may, to ask God to to reveal to you your own sin. Your own sin. To focus on your own hearts, not on their hearts. To take the plank out of your own eye before the speck out of theirs. And when they do the opposite to you, as they always do, then you carry on as you are. You worry about your sin, not theirs. 
If we're a, a church with the culture of that kind of a grace where we're more concerned with our, our own sin, where we know ourselves, what, what a place that would be. Full of friendships that are kind and forgiving and generous with each other's faults. Marriages where, where one spouse is more concerned with their own sin rather than the, the sin of their husband or wife. Let's be honest, if you're here and you're married, for however long you've been married, you will know the sins of your spouse. And more than likely, you will magnify them. And your own sins, it's just me. Just what I'm like. We excuse them, we minimise them. So, so let's be a place of marriages, whether it's two weeks or 50 years, that are full of grace, full of patience, full of forgiveness. Or parents. Parents. What about in how we bring up our children? We're not just to point out our children's faults again and again and again, to remove speck after speck after speck from them all day long. But, but let me urge you to be honest about your own need of grace, your own issues, to say sorry to your children when you need to, to admit your fault, where you got it wrong, to show that grace is not just for them, but it's for us and our parenting. Now, of course, we have a job to correct and to discipline and to, to look after children, to train them. But let's show them bags of grace as we do that. I met with a guy on Friday told me the story of when he was four, um, he's now early 20s, when he was four, he remembers vividly his mum telling him not to touch her favourite fruit bowl or else he would break it. And he touched it and he broke it. His mum said to him, I've got three options now. Either I could discipline you and I could punish you and that would teach you about justice. And you need to learn about that. Or, or I could not punish you and forgive you. And that would teach you about mercy. And you need to know that. Or I could take you to McDonald's and we could drink strawberry milkshake. And that would teach you grace. And it's vital you get that. And they went to McDonald's. If I could speak as a parent to other parents, we need to not just punish and nag and correct and remove specks. Because when we do that, then we hear it in them as well, and suddenly we hear them with their siblings like little Pharisees, nagging and correcting and removing specks. And we think, goodness, where have they heard that? And then we realise it's us. So teach them grace, take them out for strawberry milkshakes, when they don't deserve it, be honest about your own failings. Say sorry. Say, I need forgiveness too. Will you forgive me, kids? When did you last do that? Thirdly and finally, have a look with me at the right response to Jesus. So she knew she had done wrong. Simon was completely right. She was, verse 39, a sinner. He was spot on. 
But maybe you're sat here this morning, perhaps you're a guest or a visitor with us, or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're not quite sure, and you're thinking, this, this idea about sin, I'm just not good with that. I'm not happy. Isn't it a bit archaic? Have we, have we not grown out of these concepts of, of sin? And yes, it's become a dirty word. There was a, an article a while ago in the Times magazine that talked of the changing attitude that we have towards sin. It said this, it said, people don't avoid sin anymore. They avoid being found out. A spot of adultery is okay, as long as nobody gets hurt. Eating yourself stupid is fine, as long as you don't end up with a big belly and your face doesn't turn permanent brick red. And some sins aren't even wrong. Anger, well, that's good, it's just letting off steam. We need to do that. Envy, good. Gives you the urge to get on in life. Finish like this, sins don't really exist as a serious idea in modern life. At best, they are a delicious tease. So it's either that or it's, well, this is just a power play from the church. You're seeking to make me feel bad, to control me, to make me do what you want me to do. But Jesus is very clear. He says, in a world made by God, morality is not subjective. Some things are wrong. And to be honest, we just need to look at our local news for this week. Local news that's become national news, which means most thoughtful people will agree that sin is not relative. As gangs of men befriend and ensnare and abuse and sell young Oxford girls for horrible things, we know morality is not relative. As some of the papers have said this week, evil exists. And yet the point Jesus is making in his story is that to some extent we're all in the same boat. We're all in debt. We're all sinners. Whether like a Pharisee called Simon, outwardly moral, impressive, ticking the boxes, or somebody with a history like her, We're all in debt because we've all walked out on the one who made us. It might be a new thing for you if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. It might be that you thought being a Christian was all about behaviour, doing what you can to keep God off your back, living a life slightly drab and devoid of fun. Simon the Pharisee, in your mind, is the Christian. He is a Jesus follower. But Jesus says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. He came for people like her. And so what is her response? Well, she starts off, as we all do, out of relationship with God. And yet she recognises that. That's the key thing. She knows that she's not good. She knows what she's like. And so she comes to him, and Jesus knows what she wants, even though she doesn't speak. He knows what she's doing. He knows her heart. Which is why he says to her, verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. The only way for someone to be out of a debt is to find someone who's not in debt, willing to pay that debt off. And so Jesus forgives her sins. Almost as if he's God. Almost as if he has the right to forgive sins. 
which if this isn't true, is blasphemy. Because only God can forgive sins. Verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven. Six most important words she'd ever hear. Regardless of our background, the skeletons in our closet, of our history, of what we're like, the debt that we owe, we come to Jesus and say sorry. And we can never deserve it. Striking, isn't it? If you know Luke's Gospel, as you read through, he loves the marginalised, he just keeps going on about it. Tax collectors, prostitutes, people that nobody else will hang out with. And theologians will say, well, Luke, he was a Gentile, he was somebody outside the people of God, so maybe these ideas are really precious to him. And no doubt there's some truth in that. But I wonder if he's almost saying to us, do you get it? (laughs) Do you get grace? Do you see you're the tax collector? You're the prostitute? This is you. You have that huge debt to God. And you can't pay it off by yourself. You might magnify their sins so you feel a bit better about yourself. But look at your own. one of those in the papers last week, one of those charged with the Bullfinch trial, were to walk in amongst us today, maybe come to church lunch, how would you feel about that? What would you say to them? What if they were to sincerely pray to God for forgiveness with tears running down their cheeks, with cries of repentance? Do we get grace? Can we grasp that kind of concept? Can we cope with that if they came in? In reality, how would we feel? Are we more like Jesus? Or are we more like the Pharisees who look down on others and see their sin 